you may not have to travel far to find fascinating sites from a thousand years ago. Try Effigy Mounds National Park in Iowa. There is a mound in the shape of a bear facing the direction of the Mississippi River. Prayers held, bones buried, protected. Coming up, Terry Tempest Williams introduces us to her favorite national parks. In the American Southwest, history is still very much alive. You don't have to find out how Native people lived a long time ago to learn other ways, you know, other cultures of the United States. You can find out how Native people are living now. Flannery Burke explores what the Great Southwest represents to the rest of the country. And Christopher Solomon describes a hot, dusty week crossing the wilds of Utah on a mountain bike. Some really adventurous outings that mix exhaustion with beauty. The views are magnificent in the hour ahead. Come along. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Mountain bikes were made for the kind of rugged trip Christopher Solomon recently got back from. He spent a week crossing the desert and mountain wilderness of southern Utah on a bike tour designed to taste the almost feral spirit of the Wild West, like a modern-day Edward Abbey on fat tires. Chris joins us a little later in the hour today on Travel with Rick Steves. And Flannery Burke explains what Arizona and New Mexico represent to the nation and to each other as a -a one-of-a-kind region we often call the Great Southwest. Terry Tempest Williams invites us to celebrate the land and the people you'll meet at a variety of national parks across the United States. In her book, The Hour of Land, she describes the parks she's visited as breathing spaces, each with a unique personality that deserve our patronage, our respect, and our protection. Terry, it's good to have you with us. Thank you, Rick. Your book, The Hour of Land, takes us not to the obvious parks, but it takes us to some of the less famous parks. You chose about a dozen parks to introduce to us. Why these parks? Why not Why not the grand and famous ones? Would you believe me if I told you that I saw this as a dinner party? You know, my mother was a great hostess, and she always said, you know, pick your dinner parties very carefully because who knows what will come out of them. So, you know, here we have 59 national parks in our country, how to choose a dozen. (laughs) So I really did envision it as a dinner party. I knew who the heads of the table would be, my mother park, which would be Grand Teton National Park. The other end of the table, I knew it would be Canyonlands National Park, where we live closely to. You know, I could count on them. Then I thought, all right, who's going to be on the other end of the table holding the space that are reliable? And for me, it was Acadia National Park in Maine and Teddy Roosevelt National Park in North Dakota. I had been to them many times, and they were trustworthy. (laughs) Then I thought, okay, who are the dream guests that I would want that I don't know, but I know other people who do, and we can bring them to the table? And I thought of Big Bend National Park. I thought of Gates of the Arctic National Park and Effigy Mounds. And I thought, those are my dream guests. So they came to the party. Then I thought, all right, Who's the guest that you just don't want to have there? It's a family member. You know they're complicated, difficult, but you have to have them. That was Glacier National Park for me. I just thought, I really don't want to get into climate change, that glaciers are melting, and and the history with the Blackfeet Nation. But Glacier National Park sat at the table. And then there were the bad boys and girls, the ones who I knew would keep the conversation interesting and honest. That would be Gettysburg, Issues of Slavery. That would be 
Alcatraz, issues of incarceration. That would be Gulf Island National Seashore, BP oil spill. And then there's always the surprise guest who changed everything, and that would be Cesar Chavez National Monument. So that was my dinner table, my dinner party. Can I come to the dinner party? Please, please. Okay, so I'm, I, I'm just, I just walked into the dinner party, and, and I'm, I'm Rick, the travel writer. Can you introduce me to a couple of these parks in a way that I'll, I'll better understand their personality and want to get to know them better? I think I'd first introduce you to Cesar Chavez because he changed everything for me, that national park. You know, we hear that our national parks are our best idea. It was Cesar Chavez National Monument that said it's an evolving idea. That, you know, here we have... In 1916, Stephen Mather, the head of the National Park Service, who looks at his donors, um, Mrs. Astor, coming to Yosemite, would she be comfortable camping? No, she would not. They build the Awani Hotel. Fast forward to 2012, we have a black president who was a community organizer who chose to honor another community organizer, Cesar Chavez, an evolving idea. Over there, there's Grand Teton. Can you introduce me to Grand Teton? I understand that's where you've had so many childhood memories. Grand Teton National Park. This is my mother park. This is the park that after September 11th, when I was in Washington, D.C., and felt that there was no solid ground beneath my feet, I went back to Grand Teton and put my hand on the flanks of her mountain and went up to Amphitheater Lake and rebaptized myself in safety. Whoa, I want to drink with Grand Teton, but wait a minute. Over there is Big Bend National Park, who I've heard is really interesting after dark. I made a pact with Big Bend. Let me introduce you. That should I ever disappear, that's where I'll be. And you're right. It is a nocturnal park where the sounds of peccary, of javelina under moonlight, sound like the tiptoeing of patent leather hooves on Sandstone. I want to be there at midnight, but but wait a minute. I remember last time I was with you, you told me Canyonlands was the most beautiful place on Earth and also the most vulnerable. Introduce me. Canyonlands. If you believe the Earth is flat, come to Canyonlands, to the Needles Overlook, and you will see the curvature of the Earth. It is an erosional landscape that reminds us how young we really are. Who would you introduce me to to, to really connect with, with Native American culture? Come with me to Effigy Mounds on the banks of the Mississippi River, and let's walk into this glen where there's a 215-foot wingspan of a mound in the shape of a peregrine falcon. And while we're watching this mound and swear that the wings move, a red-headed woodpecker drops down to right where the heart would be. And if you go a little bit further, there is a mound in the shape of a bear, facing the direction of the Mississippi River. Prayers held, bones buried, protected. Terry Tempest Williams has invited us to a most unusual get-together in which we get acquainted with a diverse collection of national parks. She describes her experiences at each of them in her latest book called The Hour of Land, The Personal Topography of America's National Parks. It's now out in paperback. Terry and her husband live close to Arches National Park in Utah. Terry's website is coyoteclan.com. You know what's odd to me is our national park system was born in wartime, and there's a, a battlefield that's actually 
a national park. Can you introduce me to Gettysburg? Gettysburg is the guest I least know and that I keep going to visit. I went back to Gettysburg every single season trying to get a better sense of who this guest is. And in those furrowed fields of, of dried wheat that vultures still fly over, one can still feel the spirits of those who mm. were fallen. I'd love to meet a park that, that, that just sweeps me away in the majesty of our coastlines. What would that be? Gulf Islands National Seashore. It was there in the, the heat of the BP oil spill that I flew over those waters with a pilot who told me that when that water was on fire, he saw a pod of dolphins side by side by side, treading water, looking at the flames, wondering. I want to be all alone. And, and sometimes a guest at a party is kind of just there in the corner, and the classic still waters run deep. Where's a place where I can appreciate solitude at your dinner table here? Gates of the Arctic showed me what silence sounds like, stillness. When we flew into Gates of the Arctic, I felt like a moth among mountains, and it was there that we watched a grizzly bear with two cubs walk in autumn tundra, crossing a pass. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're at a National Park dinner party with Terry Tempest-Williams. Her book is The Hour of Land. And Terry, this, this is a party I'm never going to forget. And they always say don't talk about religion and politics, but I know that you are just, you've got a fire in your belly about politics and nature. And I'd like to meet one of your guests, one of your parks that's going to put a fire in my belly for the importance of waking up to where we're going with our environment. Who would I meet and who would I talk to? You know, I would introduce you to Theodore Roosevelt National Park, and there we would walk to the Elkhorn Ranch where Teddy Roosevelt said that after the death of his wife and mother, he went there to grieve. And it was in those three years in the Badlands of North Dakota that he developed the character to become President of the United States. Who would I talk to about the whole issue of civil liberties as it applies to nature? You know, I would introduce you to Alcatraz and the exhibit by the Chinese dissident artist Ai Weiwei. And it was there that I began to appreciate. He showed me the relationship between confinement and creativity and how crucial it is to fight for the rights of, of all humans and to recognize the structures of racism that do exist even the incarceration of, of Hopi people who were jailed at Alcatraz and who later we saw the uprising at Alcatraz of Native people and what a dynamic democracy we have that is chronicled in our national parks. The issue of our day, really, in so many ways, is climate change. If ever there was an existential threat, who would I talk to at this party where I, I could gain that perspective? We would meet Glacier National Park and stand before her retreating glaciers with humility, with resolve, and with a devotion to stand in the heart of change with as much resolve as we can to do what we can with the place where we find ourselves now. Is it conceivable that 
the day will come when Glacier National Park would be more properly named No Glacier National Park? I think Glacier National Park will remind us of a world we once stood in the middle of and failed to recognize as holy. And I think the gift of Glacier National Park around this dinner table is she gives us the courage to face the future, uncertain as it is, with the fortitude to face the sacrifices that are going to be required of us. We are at a crossroads. We can continue on the path we've been on in this nation that privileges profit over people and land, or we can unite as citizens with a common cause. This is the hour of land, and the time has come for acts of reverence and restraint on behalf of the earth. I would ask us to listen, hands on the earth, listen, and remember what it means to be human. One of the best ways to truly feel the majesty of the American West is on a mountain bike tour across the wilderness. Christopher Solomon tells us about his outdoor adventure across Utah in just a bit. Next, we explore why New Mexico and Arizona can make you feel like you're in another world. We're at 877-333-7425 as we enjoy some special corners of the United States today on Travel with Rick Steves. Mention the Great Southwest, and there's no shortage of stereotypes that come to mind. A nearly alien landscape of desert mesas and adobe settlements, with some old-style trading posts, and maybe a UFO tossed in for fun. But did you know it also offers some of the oldest historical sites in North America? Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, let's check in with a native-born daughter of Santa Fe to examine how the region sees itself. Flannery Burke teaches history at St. Louis University, And she's just written A Land Apart, the Southwest and the Nation in the 20th Century. In it, she explores how images promoting the Great Southwest got started and how they stack up with today's reality. Flannery, welcome. Thanks for having me. This is really fun. So A Land Apart, the Southwest and the Nation in the 20th Century. Uh, When you say A Land Apart, that really does sort of um, define what is something that's unique about the Southwest. How do you define the Southwest, and and how is it a land apart? Well, I define the Southwest both geographically and temporally. So I say early in the book to ask where a place is is also to ask when. And the Southwest in the 20th century, I define as the states of Arizona and New Mexico, with a little bit of bleeding around the edges into border towns like uh, Nogales and El Paso, Texas, and Juarez, Mexico, and a little bit of reaching into Utah and southern Colorado. So 20th century was essentially Arizona and New Mexico. But if you looked at it earlier, it goes way back. I mean, we're so inclined to think of uh, 1620 or Plymouth Rock as the beginning of things. And then it's kind of astounding to, to be reminded that's sort of a, I don't know if ethnocentric is the right approach, but it's, it's not an open-minded approach to the story of our country because 
The Southwest goes way, way back. It does, yes, although it wasn't called the Southwest then. It was the North. Or, well, it depends. Once again, it depends when. Well, yeah, but if you go back to the earlier heritage, it certainly was the North because uh, it has a Hispanic orientation. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, if we're if we're in the 1500s, then the Southwest is the North for uh, Spanish conquistadors. If we're in the 1300s or the 1100s, then the Southwest is just home for many indigenous people. And people are always astonished to come and discover that Taos Pueblo has been continuously inhabited for a thousand years. They're astonished to discover that there were Europeans here before there were Europeans in Virginia, before there were Europeans in Massachusetts. It is interesting to think that Arizona and New Mexico were the last two states admitted to the contiguous United States. I mean, when it was the lower 48, everything was the United States except for Arizona and New Mexico. And that yep. probably relates, it seems to me it relates to the fact that there was a stronger Hispanic orientation to those two states, correct me if I'm wrong, you don't have that Hispanic heritage as strong elsewhere, where if you look at a map, you think, well, why wouldn't it be elsewhere? But it really is something unique in the Great Southwest. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so Americans were very overt in their aversion to admitting New Mexico and Arizona into the United States. There were pockets of Spanish-speaking people in Texas and in southern Colorado and certainly in California. But in Texas and California, particularly Anglos, which is what Southwesterners call English-speaking people, Anglos had really overrun those earlier Spanish and then Mexican settlements. And so Arizona and New Mexico endured this really long territorial period while Anglos in Congress and territorial representatives from Arizona and New Mexico argued about whether the states were modern enough, whether they could be successfully assimilated wow. into the United States. That's and real, it took until 1912 <laughs> and, and to convince problem. them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Flannery, if we want to travel there and, and pick up on on the Hispanic heritage and uh, and the culture that, that is so deeply woven into the DNA of the region, where do we go and what do we see? It's not even necessary to get off the beaten path to see what might strike many listeners as really unusual, you know, really something from a land apart. So uh, one of my very favorite places in Santa Fe is to be along the Acequia Madre, which is the mother ditch of the city. And this is water that is still communally managed according to Spanish and, and Mexican tradition. The Acequia Madre is just a block away from Canyon Road, which is where tourists love to go to look at the art. And so it's not hard to walk that one block and see what is really the life of the city. And I was certainly taught as a child that water is sacred. I think all people who grow up in the desert are taught that water is sacred. But that sacred meaning to water was formalized through indigenous practices with water and then later uh, through Hispanic practices with water. And the Acequia Madre has persevered through that hundred years of U.S. control. And while there are other ways of managing water in the Southwest, Acequias are still there. And hmm. so it's not hard to go and see them. 
You know, that is interesting. Just you used the word persevere. I'm always impressed by how indigenous values, indigenous passions, and indigenous uh, spirituality can persevere through the sort of brutal onslaught of a bigger, more powerful culture that just comes in and owns everything. What are some ways that indigenous, not necessarily Hispanic or non-Anglo, but what are some of the indigenous values or, or spirits that persevere in the Southwest, in this land apart to this day? Well, I think one of the best examples actually you know, is native people. Uh, and I know that a lot of people come to the Southwest to find out about the indigenous presence in North America a long time ago. But one of the things that I sort of realized as I was writing the book is that the Southwest is one of the best places to go to see how Native people have persevered. Uh, Phoenix has reservations on three sides. Um, so Phoenix is one of the most Native American cities in the United States. And you don't have to find out how Native people lived a long time ago to learn other ways, you know, other cultures of the United States. You can find out how Native people are living now. Flannery, are there actually families that can trace their roots to times even before the Hispanic encroachment on the region? Are, are there long-established pre-Columbian families in the Old Southwest? Absolutely. One of the great things about visiting the Southwest now is that Native American political power, Native American cultural power, is probably the greatest it has ever been since U.S. and hmm. Spanish colonization. And so the sense of distinctiveness, I think, I, I'm not Native myself, but the sense of distinctiveness among Native people is just the strongest and most powerful, and, and their voices are, are the loudest that they've been in a very long time. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with historian Flannery Burke, and her book is A Land Apart talking about the great Southwest, specifically Arizona and New Mexico. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Laura's calling in from Fort Worth in Texas. Laura, thanks for your call. Hi, thanks for having me. So I live in North Texas, and uh, in the past month I've been up to Oklahoma a couple times and saw a new heritage center on the Chickasaw Nation, as well as another one, but I was surprised to see kind of uh, new energy and new resources and effort put towards preserving these nations' identity. I actually got to speak to one of the members of the Chickasaw, and she told me that there's a, a move within their culture to preserve the language through Rosetta Stone. So my question for Flannery is, I guess, if she uh, has any information about these centers, about their usefulness, if they're doing a good job representing the culture, if she's visited them. Thank you for your call, Laura. And these are these heritage centers then. Flannery, what's your take on that? I am not familiar with the Chickasaw Heritage Center, but I know that it's been a steady campaign on the part of the Navajo in particular to preserve their language. So there are Navajo language radio stations on the Navajo Nation. Navajo is taught at the University of New Mexico and also at other schools in Albuquerque. There's a very large contingent of Navajo students at the University of Northern Arizona and at Arizona State University. So this language, which 
actually helped the United States win World War II. There were Navajo code talkers. This language has really had a resurgence, especially since the, the 1970s. So I think that there's a great deal of faith on the part of indigenous people that by preserving language, they are also preserving the places that have meaning to them. I've noticed, I actually just drove through a Nambe Pueblo on Sunday, and all of the street signs on Nambe Pueblo are in their language. So I don't know if that specifically answers your question, Laura, but I know that for many indigenous people in the Southwest, preservation of language means preservation of culture. Yes, it does. So that's really exciting to hear that there are other places where there's an effort to preserve it, because I'm actually a a master's student in language here at the University of Texas, and I totally believe in the power of language to literally speak for a culture. So, And Laura, I I was very impressed by this notion that every year, you know, many languages actually go extinct. They die out. And in the last generation, there's been an awareness of the value of languages, and some of the smaller languages that were heading towards their extinction are actually have turned the corner and are, are more widely spoken now than they were a generation ago. I know that's the case in Europe, and it sounds like that's happening with Native American cultures a little bit in the last generation. Mm, that's very exciting. Yeah. Hey, Laura, thanks for your call. Thank you. Flannery Burks, our guest today on Travel with Rick Steves. She's an associate professor of history at St. Louis University, and she's written a cultural history of the Southwest United States called A Land Apart. It's published by the University of Arizona Press. You can find links to our guests each week at ricksteves.com slash radio. Hey, when you're talking about the Southwest, where did that notion of the great Southwest come from? Was that created by some initiative for tourism or something? Do you know? So that was created by a man named Charles Lummis. And in the late 19th century, he hit on this idea. It was a publicity stunt that he would walk from Ohio to Los Angeles. Hmm. And he basically followed the route of the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railway. And he arrived in Los Angeles, and his dispatches were published in the Los Angeles Times. Um, He later went to work for the Los Angeles Times. And then later, he worked for the Los Angeles Chamber of Commerce. And he had a a magazine called Out West that he published. Hmm. And he had to write for a living, so he had to write a lot. And he called the portion of New Mexico and Arizona that he had passed through on his walking trip and where he had made many, many friends and among uh, Nuevo Mexicano and also indigenous communities. He called that and Southern California the Great Southwest. Okay, so back then, and this is the late 1800s, he didn't distinguish between the more indigenous southwest of Arizona, New Mexico, and then California. He thought it was all together. But today, that magic sort of stays distinct and unique in what you're considering the southwest, which is those two states. I think so. Lummis went on to found the Southwest Museum, which Mm -hmm. still operates in Los Angeles, just off the Pasadena Freeway. But Southern California was repeatedly overwhelmed by waves of migrants. Well, uh, yes, one of them, California would have more modern Hispanic migrants, whereas Arizona and New Mexico would have more indigenous people who might be mistaken as migrants. 
Right, hmm. right. And yes. <laughs> Flannery, how do you distinguish then within the Southwest between Arizona and New Mexico? Are they, from your point of view, pretty much indistinguishable, or do they each have distinct personalities? They definitely each have distinct personalities, and the most consistent response that I have gotten from other historians of the American West about this book is, why are you talking about them together? <laughs> right. Because historians have actually talked about Arizona and New Mexico separately even more than they have talked about the United States and Mexico separately. They're kind of sisters in the fact that they were the last two states in the lower 48 to be Right, admitted. and they were both admitted in 1912. And they're both uh, more indigenous. Don't they have a stronger indigenous culture than other more Anglo states? They do. And as your caller pointed out, Oklahoma has a really strong indigenous presence. The Pacific Northwest has a really strong indigenous presence. And indigenous people persevere all over the United States. But it's especially visible in Arizona and New Mexico today. One thing interesting in your book is you point out that uh, Santa Fe was the end of several old trading routes. You know, we think of Route 66 and that open road and wonderful desert landscapes and everything. But it's also interesting to think of the impact of trading routes in uh, centuries past. Talk just a little bit about the importance of trading routes and, and why that might have put Santa Fe on the map more than we might appreciate. Well, Santa Fe was kind of a nexus of trade from Mexico City to the northern regions uh, when Mexico was Spanish and later when it was Mexican. And then it was also the terminus of the Santa Fe Trail, uh, which connected St. Louis and the area that became Kansas City with Santa Fe. So a, a couple of trade routes came together in Santa Fe throughout the 19th century. And so Mexico actually, City was actually connected with St. Louis by two trade routes who came together in Santa Fe. Yeah. Fascinating. But what's fascinating for me is that then the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe Railway wound up kind of following the line of the Santa Fe Trail, and not step for step, but in many respects, the same trail. And then Route 66, you know, kind of wound up following the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe line. And so there are these layers of travel history that one walks if one goes through Santa Fe and and then, of course, westward. And if, you know, if you know the, the Route 66 song, Route 66 doesn't go through Santa Fe, it goes through Albuquerque. But then Gallup, New Mexico and Kingman, um, you know, all the way down into Los Angeles. Flannery, if you could just sum up things for us with an image. Let's say you're driving on that romantic, uh, beloved Route 66, and it's a wonderful road trip, and, and suddenly you cross into what you consider a land apart. How do you know it's different? What happens when you enter the Great Southwest? I think it's the sky. Uh, whenever I speak to anyone who lives near the ocean and tells me that they couldn't live without the ocean, I say that in the Southwest, the sky is your ocean. Hmm. And there is a show ongoing from from dawn till sunset and then even afterwards because the the sky is so clear you know there are such wonderful observatories located in the southwest uh, so that you can see the stars so it you know it doesn't really matter whether it's day or night there is either a magic of light playing on the clouds or there is this spectacular view of the stars and the moon that's hard to see in in many other places and the desert gives you that Hey, Flannery Burke, A Land Apart, thank you so much for joining us and best wishes with your teaching and your writing. 
Thank you. You can hear more with Flannery Burke on the Great Southwest with this week's show in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Christopher Solomon rode hundreds of miles of what he calls empty, achingly scenic backcountry trails on a mountain bike tour through the deserts and mountains of southern Utah. And he thinks you could probably pull it off, too. Hear how wild the ride really gets in just a minute on Travel with Rick Steves. There are parts of America that still see very few footprints. Those are the kind of places that get travel writer Christopher Solomon excited to find his next adventure. One of his latest was a week on a mountain bike crossing the wild deserts of southern Utah. Chris ended up riding 260 miles and climbed 20,000 feet of mountain terrain as part of a custom small group tour called the Hey Duke Tour. It was named after Edward Abbey's fictional desert rat who ends up vanishing into a canyon. Chris writes about it in the June issue of Outside Magazine, where he's a contributing editor. He joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us what it was like. Christopher, thanks for being here. Oh, great to be here, Rick. Describe just the basics of the trip, uh, because it sounds like it's rough, but it's also a vacation. You had a, a sag wagon and you had a guide and so on. Yeah, there's an outfitter who I've done some trips with who does some very thoughtful trips. Uh, it's called Lizard Head Cycling Guides, and they do some some really adventurous outings that mix exhaustion with beauty, I guess I would say. And this trip, the owner really loves southeast Utah, and he wanted to do a crossing of the bottom of the state, but cut off kind of the boring bits. And so he envisioned a two-week trip in which people could sign up for one week or both, I chose the second week, but the two-week trip would start in Big Water, Utah, which I'd never heard of, and is over on the west side of Lake Powell, uh-huh. and then goes for 450 miles in kind of a rough J-shape across the bottom of the state, swinging through like the Henry and Abajo Mountains, past Lake Powell again, into Glen Canyon Rec- National Recreation Area, down into the new Bears Ears National Monument, then up past Canyonlands, and then finishes with finish line hamburgers in Moab. <laughs> finish line ham- I bet that was one of the best hamburgers you've ever had. Oh, my God. And uh, <laughs> you just fall into a pint of beer at the local brewery. Now, I got to say, physically, you look like the last person I would ever imagine that would take a tour. You just look like uh, you walked right out of some sports magazine, <laughs> uh, you know, outfitters, uh, dream come true. But you compromised the independence to do this experience with other people who you didn't know, and you actually had a guide And you had a sag wagon where if you wanted to take some time off, you could just go ahead or leave your gear there and they'd meet you. For an independent traveler, a young, on-the-ball, adventurous, outdoors enthusiast, are you glad you took the tour? Yeah, I think you bring up a good point. I mean, I love to go backpacking by myself. I'll go ski touring with friends in terms of outdoor kind of activities. My friends and I are fairly independent and sort of Mm self-contained. But for trips like this, there are real benefits to going with an outfitter on a week-long a mountain biking trip, someone else carries all your stuff and you yeah. get to just ride all day, especially in the desert where you might have to carry five gallons of water if you were right. just, and that's just for one day. And then you get into camp and you've got some interesting people that you've shared the experience with. Is that a plus? Yeah, for the most part, it's a plus. You never know who you're going to meet and stuff. But part of the 
magical experience sometimes is meeting new people and just having these amazing experiences along the way. But um, you could do a trip like this if you were a very experienced um, mountain biker. You know, bike packing, as it's called, is a, is a very hot trend right now in mm. the outdoors. But I'm not that experienced of a mm-hmm. mountain biker. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to go with an experienced guide. I say that as kind of a leading question because I think there's a lot of very independent, capable, younger travelers that don't really properly consider the benefits of taking an organized tour because it's good to have a guide. It's it's good to have the backup. It's good to have the social fund as well. Oh, yeah. And, the, you know, and the guide has expertise. The guide has stories. Mm-hmm. I mean, the guide, of course, takes care of all the logistics. When you add all that up, it's really not that expensive. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's I mean, what I find when, when I go on a vacation. I like to take river rafting in, in the great outdoors because uh, I all I do is museums in Europe and so on. It's a beautiful break from that. And it's nice to have that guide who can tell the stories and answer your questions. And, you know, you've got the comforts of a tour as well. Now, when I read your article, and I'll tell you, you must have taken good notes in the midst of this epic uh, bike ride. The sand and the thirst. Talk about the sand. I mean, it's just it just sounds brutal. There's a famous mountaineer in the Northwest named Fred Becky who is legendary. And he has a quote in one of his books that says, the beauty is paid for in part with the currency of suffering. I always loved that quote, and it's an old idea from English uh, adventurers. And the idea that the colors are always a little brighter if you've had to bleed for them. You know, and I don't take that sentiment too far because I'm... No, but it's like if you drive up to a mountain pass, you enjoy the beauty. But if you bike up to the mountain pass, you probably really enjoy the beauty. I think we can all relate to the idea that if we've had to earn something, it, you know, yeah. the taste is that much sweeter. And I'm a Pilot big, bread and spam taste really good if you've been hiking all day. It sure does. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I'm not an incredibly hard man athlete, but I really enjoy these things where you get out and test yourself a little bit during the day. And the view is that much greater at camp. So um, you got the sand everywhere. And then yep. you're thirsty. You wrote about how tongues grow thick <laughs> and cold conversation ceases. <laughs> well, we had this epic day on actually the first day of the trip. To be fair, the guides tweaked the trip afterwards to make it a little less arduous. But um, you can go in the desert uh, from these just almost sublime rhapsodic sort of uh, experiences. And then everybody runs out of water and the sag wagon didn't show up where we thought it was going to. And suddenly everyone's out of water and it's dusk and you've suddenly gone 45 miles and and you're done, and you, you don't feel like going any farther, and the mood changes just like that. And Conversation <laughs> ceases, and then tailwinds become headwinds, and the sun is an anvil overhead. Uh, these are experiences that you earn. There's a great line, and, it, and it's a line I'd heard before in the outdoors that one of the guides repeated. He says, you know, this is what we call type 2 fun. Type 2 fun. So there's two kinds of fun. <laughs> yeah. and, and I said, remind me, type 2 fun? And he says, yeah, it doesn't have to be fun to be fun. Well, in that sense, this was a great trip. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, and there are, there are moments like that throughout the day. So there are highs and lows throughout these trips. And I find that that's part of the real pleasure of them, too, mm-hmm. is like, realistically, life isn't just this constant highlight reel. There, yeah. there are moments of ecstasy, and then you're down in the dumps again, and you're not sure you're going to get out, but then you pull out again. And I think that's, that's life, and that's also what makes these trips so, so special. You know, you had an option. You could have spent... I would bet less money by flying to Mazatlan and being on a beachside resort with a little plastic strap on your wrist and get all the margaritas you want. And uh, it would have been easier, and it might have been type one fun. <laughs> yeah. But but I think as far as embracing life and having a forever vivid experience, this one would top that hands I, down. I think I said in, an, in another piece once, I think beaches are morgues with better lighting. I mean, to me. Beaches <laughs> are morgues with better lighting. i got to write that down. 
Christopher Solomon's our guest today on Travel with Rick Steves. Chris is a contributing editor at Outside Magazine. His article and photos from his mountain bike tour across southern Utah appear in the June 2017 edition. Christopher, let's talk about the biking environment. Uh, What were the roads like? Uh, I understand you actually found stream beds to sometimes be the best place to bike. And then what was the actual bike like? Yeah, well, here's what was interesting about this trip, Rick, is you didn't have to be some exceptional mountain biker, and I'm not. John Humphreys of Lizard had had stitched together this route. It was a skein of of old um, ranch roads, mining roads, occasionally logging roads up on the mountaintops, often old wide gravel and sand-type roads. It wasn't aggressive, you know, single track, as they call it in mountain biking. Mm-hmm. You had to be incredibly skilled. You just had to be, you know, a little bit careful for those the sand and the deep washes and stuff like that. But often in the, in the desert country, uh, the flattest thing around is an old stream bed. And stream beds do what stream beds do when it rains. And so they could be pretty rutted. They could be filled with boulders. And so uh, we took the latest mountain bikes. And mountain bikes these days are things of wonder. I mean, So you could have a, a rocky stream bed and you could actually find that a, a workable road because of the modern bikes that you had. Big tires, hydraulic posts on the seats to absorb the shock. Oh, they're just as, as plush as a Cadillac these days. The, the seats will go up and down to lower or raise your center of gravity to keep you nice and comfortable and safe, safer. The tires now for some of these bikes are three inches wide. I mean, they'll practically surf on some of yeah. the sand. They'll make you so much better than you think you are, which is going to be dangerous. Actually. And all your gear is in the wagon, so it's going ahead, except you've got a little day bag on with your water. And yeah, you're carrying, you you're carrying enough for, for safety for the day because you, you're not sometimes sure how much you're going to meet the... This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Christopher Solomon about his adventures on a mountain bike going across a remote corner of Utah. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Joe's calling from New Hampshire. Hey, Joe, do you have a comment or a question for Christopher? Yes, I have a question. Uh, my wife and I are both uh, have on our bucket list to do some mountain biking. And uh, listening to the conversation right there, the question is, what is the best way for us to get in shape we're doing a trip like that, and what type of accessories would you suggest that we take with us? Yeah, uh, so a couple questions there. The first one, I would suggest there's nothing, nothing like doing. So I don't know how much you have the chance to just get out and ride your bike. And if you can't be riding, and, and I'm not trying to be simplistic about that, but getting out and just getting in the saddle. And if you can't get on your mountain bike, get in a spin class four days a week. I, I live in, in the city of Seattle, and I, I'm in the gym riding a stationary bike more often than I'd care to admit. You need that saddle time, too. There's nothing worse than getting saddle sores about a day and a half into a, hmm. into a long trip like that. It's very uncomfortable. You get a saddle sore, and it's probably not going to go away for the rest of that vacation. No, it, it'll go, it might go away right near the end, but it might not, and it could get worse. <laughs> um, so you, you just need you know, butt-in-the-seat time. Just find time to ride several days a week, and even if it's at the gym would be my first suggestion. The second one, you asked about what kind of accessories. A good outfitter will provide a long list of gear that you need. I mean, were you wondering about anything in particular? Uh, just in general, that's all. I'm not even sure where to begin when I think about a trip like that. Well, probably okay. a big deal is if you're going to take a tour or go on your own. Yeah, the thing, the biggest thing I would I would just suss out for a trip is just make sure it's you're comfortable with the ability level of the tour's that you're thinking about. I guess that would be the, just make sure you're not in over your head and really ask a lot of questions of the tour operator. I have been on one or two where people do get a little swamped. Bite off more than they can chew physically. Yeah. All right, Joe, thanks for your call. Thank you very much for taking it. Okay, good luck on your next mountain bike trip. Laura's calling from Fort Worth in Texas. Hey, Laura. 
Yes, hi. Thanks for your call. Do you have a question or a comment for Christopher? Um, yes, I do. I've been reading Desert Solitaire, the book that Edward Abbey wrote in the 1960s, and I was inspired by a section in which he proposes that, so he was a park ranger, but he, he proposes that park roads um, should be limited to pedestrians, park buses, or bikes, um, allowing people to be liberated from the automobile. <laughs> he uses the word liberated. Um, and I have experienced that freedom in Denali National Park where um, you really can't get very far into the park unless you park your car at the entrance and then you take a bus in or you walk or bike. And so um, he says at one point, a man on foot, on horseback, or on a bicycle will see more, feel more, enjoy more in one mile than the motorized tourist can in 100 miles. So my question is to your guest, if, if he knew about that proposal and if, if that informed his desire to plan a bike trip. You, you know, I, I have read Desert Solitaire, but it's been a long time ago. I was reading some Abbey in preparation to go down there because it's sort of the Vade Mecum, right, of, of this desert southwest. Uh, and you've got to read some of him before heading into his land. Edward Abbey. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, he was a little bit contradictory, though. You know, he does say in a couple of his things, you know, people slide through this country now, what slick as grease. But then he, he would take some backcountry roads for two weeks with friends in an automobile, in an old truck. But I, I have heard about some of these um, proposals. Philosophically, I'm in favor of them. I do understand that some people can't move around as easily as the rest of us. So I, I understand some of the pushes and pulls on, on either side, but I'm certainly sympathetic to the idea of more people getting out and seeing it by bike. You slow down more. You, you really do. You roll, you roll down the window. As I think he says in one of the essays I was reading, he goes, roll down the window, lady. That smell, it's the desert. Mm. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, I certainly understand. I don't think realistically we're going to be able to shut all the roads in Mount Rainier National Park and give people rent-a-bikes anytime soon. But I like the idea of maybe trying it more. And just the agreement that philosophically, you know, ideally, if you get out and walk or bike, you'll experience more. And even if you're going by car, you can factor that into what you're able to do physically. Yeah. Laura, thanks for your call. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Christopher Solomon about his mountain bike ride in Utah. And Christopher, let's just uh, wrap things up here with some of the the simple joys. I mean, you're caked in dust and you finally get to a shower. That must be an amazing, nice feeling. (laughs) You know, these trips always have a certain progression, Rick, I find, where you get out there and at first you can't almost deal with it. You're still in civilization mode, city mode, and you're just, you're uncomfortable, you're hot, you're sweaty, you're sticky. Because I can't go to bed at night without taking a shower if I'm a little bit sweaty. Right. You're going to get over that, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and then, but about a day and a half in, you, you forget about your cell phone. You start to forget that you're all hot and sticky. The food... Everything you're fed tastes like filet mignon, and just something just starts to happen to you. And you uh, actually forget that you're sticky and well, sweaty. I, I you, mean, you, you kind of do. You I get mean, over you, that. You're, suddenly, you're, you haven't washed your hair, and you don't really care. Oh, oh <laughs> you don't even remember you have hair. And uh, you do get a solar shower. Someone's hung on a juniper tree, and, and it's been baked by the sun. And suddenly, you've got hot water about three days in, and you're only able to scrub off like the top two layers of dust, and it still feels just magical. <laughs> and then you put on a clean pair of socks, and you could be a king. It's really just a, a a really, and you climb into experience. bed, and you got the stars overhead, and you got you can watch the weather coming and going, and you got the bugs. I mean, what's that like? Oh, and you, you just nights. you kind of wonder what the rich people are doing tonight because because there's no one richer <laughs> than you, you know. Really, and then in the morning, a cup of coffee. Oh, and you just sit and have a cup of coffee and watch the sun come up over the Red Rock Country. Um, there was one time we, we were at the edge of a place called the Dark Canyon Primitive Area, one of many areas I'd never even heard of before, and I consider myself a fairly well traveled. 
adventure writer. Uh-huh. And and we just sat there for hours, you know, sipping a beer at the end of the day. And A beer, sitting around oh, the campfire. A cold beer. <laughs> you wrote about sparks going up toward the Milky Way. Yeah. Once in a while, someone would try to say something about how beautiful it was, this, this mini Grand Canyon at the foot of us. And everything we said just was so insufficient that you just shut up again and just stare some more and just try to remember it. You know, the sad thing to me just kind of overcame me. People go through their entire adult lives and never even get close to that experience. Yeah. yeah. And it's their choice. You can make that choice. And you don't... One thing I would want to emphasize is I'm reasonably fit, but I'm not as fit as my friends think I am or not as adventurous as people think I am. Like, people can do this stuff. With a little bit, a little bit of effort, a little bit of an adventuresome spirit. I mean, it was a guided trip. Yeah, you wrote about Kevin, one of the guys on your trip, and you said it was the seventh and last morning, and he, he said, "I never want these trips to end." That must be a special camaraderie and a special satisfaction when you've made the point to do this, and you've been caked in, in dust, and you've you've enjoyed sleeping under the stars. And yeah, and he it. and for a week he was able to step away from his very busy life with a couple kids and a wonderful uh-huh. wife, and. Uh, he fully escaped and just wanted to keep going like uh, like uh, Edward Abbey's character, Hey Duke. <laughs> okay, so you've done this. It sounds like a real triumph. How do you follow that? If you had a great dose of mountain biking and the great outdoors in, in Utah, what would be next for you in your mountain biking travel dreams? In the mountain biking travel dreams? Well, just in the same sort of uh, genre where somebody else is uh, carrying your gear and you've got one week off and you want to get close to nature and appreciate the, the bright vastness of the Milky Way. I haven't thought of a good next mountain biking trip. There's still more road biking-related supported trips I'd like to do. What would that be? Um, There's all sorts of stuff you can do through the Rockies. There's supported trips through the Alps where you eat like a king and you ride mountain passes through the Alps, following the Tour de France. That must be trendy because I know that's a big deal in river rafting is gourmet eating and beautiful Mm-hmm. appreciation of the great and you And you earn it every day. And you earn it. Like you said, uh, everything tastes like filet mignon. <laughs> <laughs> in, in that case, it is. So much fun. <laughs> hey, Christopher Solomon, thank you so much. And uh, again, uh, we can uh, read your article in, in Outside Magazine. Thank you. Drifting along with a tumbling tumbleweed. What's the scenery been like where you've been traveling? Send us a short impression from your travels in an original haiku poem. Details for sending us yours are in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Here are some interesting ones that have come in lately that we thought you might enjoy. Colin Lumen from Portland, Oregon, shares a site that has stayed with him from a visit some years ago to the desert southwest. Northern Lights, I saw. New Mexico. March 03. Sunstorms drove them south. Lynn Garner of Wailuku, Hawaii, reminds us that Maui's Central Valley shouldn't be overlooked by the island's many tourists. Sun descends, wind gusts. Sugar cane sways, gilt green in ephemeral blaze. And Mark Cohn from Beverly, Massachusetts, sends us this haiku he wrote after a visit to Quebec City. How to get back up to the top of old Quebec? Ah, the funicular. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We had studio help this week from WFRD at Dartmouth College and Stepridge Studios in Santa Fe. Flannery Burke and Rick talk about the tensions between the different population groups in the American Southwest 
in an extra to this week's show. You'll find it with our show notes at ricksteves.com radio. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. Europe Through the Back Door teaches the skills of smart travel. Travel as a political act adds meaning to the journey. And Rick Steves' best-selling country, city, and pocket guidebooks cover every corner of Europe. To learn more, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.